So as I said, our passage this morning is John 18, or pardon me, John 13, verse 18 to 30. And we'll be taking a closer look at Jesus' treatment of Judas in spite of Judas's betrayal. Both John, the narrator, and Jesus himself have already foreshadowed Judas's betrayal of Jesus. For example, in verse 2 of John chapter 13, we were told that by the time the disciples sat down to eat this meal with Jesus, quote, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. And Jesus himself said in verse 10, you are clean, and the you there is plural, y'all are clean, but not every one of you. John fills in the blanks as to what Jesus meant when he tells us in verse 11 that Jesus said it because he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. We glossed over those statements, if you, if you hadn't noticed. We didn't really pay any attention to them over the last few weeks as we were examining the foot washing narrative. But here in verses 18 to 30, Judas's betrayal of Jesus is front and center. And so we'll deal with it now and bring in that theme, which has already been introduced to us in the first 17 verses of the chapter. I would remind you of the context of the passage, though. Judas's betrayal of Jesus doesn't happen in a vacuum. Remember that Jesus has just stooped to wash the feet of his disciples. What condescension. As we saw last week, Jesus in the foot washing is giving us a symbol, a picture of his spiritual service to us. He is giving us a picture of the humility with which he descended from heaven to wash us sinners clean. Though our sins were like scarlet, though even our righteousness was as filthy rags. Though we were spiritually, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, like the lepers of old who had to walk around crying out, unclean, unclean. That's what we were like, spiritually speaking. As the old hymn puts it, the dear Lamb of God left His glory above for us to wash us filthy sinners clean. This is what Jesus came to do. This is what the foot washing symbolizes. Let me bring this a little closer to home. Think of the moment or a moment when you yourself were at your worst. You thought or you felt something awful. Anything along the spectrum from the prideful to the lascivious. For example, how superior you are to those people, whoever they might be. How foolish your wife and kids are, or your husband and your kids are, for not realizing just how important you are. This self-righteousness in your heart is wicked. It's, un- it's out of touch with reality, and it's grossly exalting yourself as a central being in this universe when in, the re- in reality all of us are very peripheral. 
It's a gross misapprehension of who we are. And though we tend to think of these things as small sins, think about the way that they manifest. A great deal of the world's problems arise from people having too exalted of a view of themselves. And that plays out in various ways. This is a gross and wicked sin. And I know that you've committed it. And I have too. Because this is human nature. And think of when you realized and saw in yourself this wickedness and this sin. Think of that moment. Or think about on the other side of the spectrum, when you had lascivious thoughts, what would it feel like to abandon your family and to live as you please? What if your situation in life was different and you weren't loaded down with all these family responsibilities and these relational obligations? And you could go what you, where you want and do what you want to do. Or, what would it feel like to abandon Christ and to live as you please? What if you were free from the fetters of God's law? And you could just soak every drop of sinful pleasure out of this life. We have thoughts like this. We are sinners. When you have those thoughts, think about that exact moment. Or think about a moment, not when you thought or felt something awful, but when you did something awful. Perhaps you got violent with somebody. Perhaps you terminated the life of your unborn baby. Perhaps you let your angry words fly. Perhaps you looked at pornography again like the slave to your passions that you are. Perhaps you cheated on your spouse. Perhaps you got high or drunk again in spite of your best efforts to quit. Whatever it may be, I'm just naming some things that we do as sinners. Evil, wicked things. Think of the moment when you were at your worst. You have to fill in the blanks here. Because I'm not about to call names up here from the pulpit. Even if I know, but half of these things I don't know. But you know. Think about when you were at your worst. And you have that terrible feeling of what an awful sinner you are. If you are a Christian, you've also had that awful feeling. Alongside those wicked thoughts and feelings and actions, you've also had that awful feeling afterward when you realize just how wicked you are. Think about that very moment. And then right at that moment, right at that very moment, see Jesus stooping at your feet. To wash you clean. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to wash sinners. Really bad ones. Not just people who are a little bit dirty. It's not the healthy. But the sick that Jesus came for. It's people like you and me. Who have wicked thoughts. And wicked feelings. And who do wicked things. And speak wicked words. Right there in those moments. See Jesus stooping to wash your feet. That is what Jesus came to do. To wash us clean of those very things. It's dirty. It's below Him. It's not His job. But He embraced it. Jesus, the dear Lamb of God, left His glory above. To open a fountain where sinners may be washed. A fountain filled with blood. 
where sins that are as scarlet may be washed as white as snow. Think of the worst person that you know on a relative scale. And reckon with this truth. There may you, though vile as he, lose all your guilty stains. This is what Jesus came to do. This is what the foot washing symbolizes. And now reckon with this. Jesus stooped at the feet of Jesus. Or pardon me, Jesus stooped at the feet of Judas. To wash him. You realize. He washed his feet. He washed his literal dirty feet. Judas. And Jesus would have washed Judas's soul had Judas acquiesced. Do you realize that Judas was not too bad? That's not the problem. The problem was not that Judas was too bad and Jesus came to wash better people. Remember Peter protesting Jesus washing of his feet? Will you wash my feet? You shall never wash my feet. Well, it seems that Judas was okay with Jesus washing the feet. We don't read anything of Judas protesting the washing of the feet. But implicitly, we have to put two and two together that Judas protested to Jesus washing of his soul. You shall never wash my soul. You shall never wash me. Yet Jesus was there that night, stooping with a towel around his waist and a basin of water ready to serve and to wash even Judas. As I said, Judas's betrayal doesn't happen in a vacuum. What evil? What evil? That when it was in Jesus' heart to wash Judas' feet, it was in Judas' heart to see Jesus' feet and hands pierced on a Roman cross. At that very moment, when Jesus stoops to wash Judas' feet, Judas is thinking about how he can get Jesus killed. One of the most chilling things you could ever read, if you stop to think about it, is in John 13 and verse 27. Satan entered into him. Verse 30 tells us that it was night when these things happened. And so there goes Judas out into the night, possessed, not just by any demon, but by Satan himself. This is pure evil in the concrete as opposed to the abstract form. This is history. This is flesh and blood. It really happened. If you had been out for a walk that night nearby to where this supper took place, you would have laid eyes on Judas leaving the upper room. 
when Jesus said to him, what you have to do, go do quickly. And laying eyes on Judas, you would have laid eyes on a Satan-possessed murderer, hell-bent on crucifying the Son of God who stoops to wash the feet of sinners. Jesus really washed Judas's feet. Then Satan really entered into Judas. Then Judas really went out into the night to gather a band of soldiers to come and to arrest the dear Lamb of God. Is this how he repays the humility of Christ? To stoop at his feet and to wash his dirty, dusty feet clean? Is this how he repays the kindness of the Lord Jesus who would have washed even his soul had he been willing? You can almost hear Jesus lamenting over Judas inwardly as he lamented over Jerusalem elsewhere in the gospel accounts. Oh, Judas, Judas, the man who kills God's ultimate prophet and messenger, Lamb of God, Messiah, I would have taken you under my wing as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. In response to this heart, out into the night, goes Judas to betray Jesus. Again, what evil. Let's circle back around now to Jesus again. What forbearance. What condescension in the first place. What evil from Judas in response. And now what forbearance. Though Jesus' grace is published widely and the invitation to come to Jesus in faith is extended to all without exception, including Judas, the scripture is quite plain that Jesus knew that Judas would not come to him in faith, but would betray him. Though Jesus would not have turned Judas away had he come, because we remember what Jesus himself said earlier in John's gospel, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's hypothetical now, of course. But had Judas come and pled that promise, that commitment with Jesus, he wouldn't have been the sole exception. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But though Jesus would not have turned Judas away had he come to him in faith, Jesus knew Judas would never have come. John 13, 17 tells us that Judas had not been chosen. Look at it. Or pardon me, verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He, ate, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. In John 17 and verse 12, again, 
Jesus speaks about Judas being lost so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He is called there the son of destruction. This is the way it is with all whom the Lord has not chosen. This is the way it is with all those who will perish in their unbelief. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 says, The Lord knows those who are His. We know that everyone given by the Father to the Son will come, because the Son will draw them. Again, this is John 6. And that whoever comes, Jesus will never turn away. And that whoever is not drawn will never come. Because Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws it. So there is no mystery or uncertainty in God's mind about who will be saved and what the end of each person's journey will be. God is not waiting as we wait to see what will happen tomorrow. God is not waiting as we wait to see what your son or your brother or your cousin or your auntie or your uncle or your coworker will do with Christ. There is no mystery or uncertainty in God's mind about who will be saved and what the end of each person's journey will be. Everything falls out in time and space according to His decree. And yet, knowing full well that Judas would betray Him, look at how Jesus treats Judas throughout the course of His life, even to the end. Jesus had so restrained himself that no one suspected that Judas was a traitor. Even when Judas left on this final night, verses 28 and 29 tell us that no one at the table knew why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. And that, a moment after Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. He turns to another and says, what you have to do, do quickly. And that one goes out into the night and the rest of the disciples don't suspect him of being a betrayer. Do you realize how intact Judas's reputation was? at this time that nobody thought to put two and two together here? Jesus had not treated Judas as his wickedness and treachery deserved. In fact, to the contrary, Jesus had treated Judas with much undeserved kindness. We know this from the fact that Judas was so evidently treated the same way as the rest of the disciples that none of the rest suspected him even when Jesus told them that one was a traitor. Judas wasn't the black sheep of the family, so to speak. He wasn't the one in the group that everybody thought, well, surely if someone was to betray Jesus, it would be him. He fit in with the disciples seamlessly and experienced the same treatment from Jesus that led the other 11 to love Jesus. 
And even here at the end, Jesus stoops to wash the dusty feet of Judas. Can't you see how Jesus so patiently forbears with Judas? Continuing to treat him with kindness all the way to the end. So God does with many unbelievers in this world. Matthew 5, 45 tells us that God makes His Son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In an agrarian society, both of these things were blessings, the sun and the rain. You want to grow crops, you know what you need? Sun and rain. This, is, this passage is telling us that the Judases of the world are treated the same way temporally by God as the Peters and the Jameses and the Johns of the world. The wicked may prosper. The wicked may enjoy much in this life. The wicked may suffer, but so may the righteous. Temporally, there's no preferential treatment of believers. The Lord sends much good, sun and rain, not only on the just, but also on the unjust. Even to those who are not appointed to eternal life. Consider that. The Lord sends the sun and the rain even upon those who are not appointed to eternal life. This is what is often called common grace. It's called common grace as opposed to saving grace because having received it, it doesn't mean that you're reconciled to God and heir to eternal life. It's common to all men, believers and unbelievers alike. Sun, rain, music. Family. But it's called grace because it's not something we're entitled to. Some people deny the notion of common grace, saying that God doesn't extend grace to unbelievers. But the implication of that is that they're entitled to whatever it is that they receive. And the implication of that is that God removing what they're entitled to is unjust. So I think we have to embrace this notion of common grace. Have you ever considered that common grace stems from the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God? Have you ever considered that common grace indicates to us what God is like. Though God certainly will punish the unrepentant wicked in eternal flames, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, as Mark 9.48 tells us, the scripture is also clear that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God punishes the wicked in hell like any sane and stable soldier extinguishes the life of a human being in the trench opposite him. 
If somebody enjoys that, there's something wrong with them. And yeah, sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do. God takes no pleasure in what must be done to win the war, though He takes pleasure in the winning of the war. And so He does what needs to be done. God takes pleasure in the manifestation of His glory, in the victory of Jesus over sin, death, and hell, which includes the destruction of His foes and the revelation of the full spectrum of His character including His justice. But in the act itself of condemning to hell, the Lord takes no pleasure. He simply does what needs to be done to that great and chief end. And in the meantime, consider this well. God is kind and forbearing and patient in various ways to all even unto those who are not appointed to eternal life every morning an unbeliever sees the sunrise every morning An unbelieving parent gets another day to be daddy or mommy to the little ones. Every time she hears a song that she likes, every promotion that he gets at work, more basically, every breath in the lungs, every moment not in hell, all of this is God's kindness and forbearance and patience. Have you considered that everything good that you have is grace? Everything good that you have is grace. Even unbelievers, everything good that you have is grace. From a kind and forbearing and patient God who could justly damn you to hell this very moment. Consider, unbeliever, that you are presently being treated in your life the way that Jesus treated Judas to the very end. Consider the grace that is yours already, common to man, And consider the saving grace held out to you in Christ, ready for you to lay hold of it. Jesus stoops at your feet, so to speak, ready to wash your soul of sin. Have you been washed? Are you willing to be washed? Or will you repay Jesus' kindness? and forbearance and patience by going out into the night in opposition to Jesus as Judas did in the passage before us. Romans 2 and verse 4 asks a soul-searching question. Do you presume 
on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Jesus stoops, ready to wash any sinner who will come. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There is a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Don't spurn God's kindness and forbearance and patience. Don't go out into the night in opposition to Jesus, repaying the good that Jesus does for you with evil as Judas did. Come to Jesus in faith. Even this morning. And be washed in the blood of the Lamb.